From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The severe chronic brain disorder known as schizophrenia is one of the most disabling diseases affecting mankind. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Cindy Weikert. She's a professor of neuroscience and physiology at Upstate who has dedicated her career to better understanding the biology of schizophrenia. And today, she's speaking to me from Sydney, Australia. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weikert. Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I understand that you're a twin and your interest in studying schizophrenia was sparked by your brother. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, my twin brother, um, he actually liked to remind me that he was my older brother by three minutes. Um, we were quite close growing up, um, always looking out for each other, holding hands our first day of kindergarten. And, um, you know, during the school years, we did typical things, swimming in lakes, um, sledding down snow-covered hills. And then in adolescence, things changed. We got a little bit more competitive. We were more rivals. But nothing prepared me for when he started saying that I was the daughter of the devil and threatening my mom and playing Beatles records backwards. And I guess we thought he'd snap out of it, but things got worse. And instead of snapping out of it, he got diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I thought, well, they'll just, you know, give him a treatment and he'll get better. But then I realized the treatments that he was getting weren't helping him to get better. So I decided I'd try to figure out what was wrong with his brain so I could help him. So what age was that, that these changes started taking place? Um, around 17 years of age. How did he get diagnosed? And how, in general, does a person go about getting the schizophrenia diagnosis? How, what's the disease defined as? As far as I know, the only way to get a diagnosis is by a trained clinician, um, typically a psychiatrist, and they do a structured interview. They have to um, ask a number of questions and see persistent, bizarre, bizarre behavior. So it will be uh, anything from disorganized speech to having delusions. Um, so you actually will see things that aren't there, hear things that aren't there. Oftentimes they get this sensation that there's um, things being implanted into their brain or they're being sent special messages. In the case of my brother, he had all kinds of wires hooked up in his room, with these geometric shapes on the wall, and he would play Beatles records backwards. And he felt that there were special messages being encoded in there for him. Um, so that's not uncommon, this thought insertion, it's called. Um, but it can be um, delusions of almost religious persecution or um, delusions of grandeur or um, any variety of things that are separating reality from the perception. And that's really what schizophrenia means, a splitting of the mind from reality. Why does it appear so often in late adolescence or early adulthood? That's a really good question. We're not entirely sure. I have a working hypothesis that um, there's normal maturational processes that happen, and we know about these in the body, they're obvious, but in the brain, there's also maturational events, particularly um, surrounding the dopaminergic neurons. And so they make a transition from a juvenile state to an adult state. And um, my theory is that individuals with schizophrenia fail to make that transition appropriately. So it's a time of vulnerability. It's a time of change. And, you know, um, 
Sex hormones can drive that. Um, if there's psychosocial stress, that could derail the development. If there's exposure to drugs of abuse, that could derail the development. So there's one thing that we know for sure, there's not one cause of schizophrenia, there's multiple causes. And in different individuals, there can be different root causes. And um, so I think adolescence is just a vulnerability period and it kind of can unmask a prior vulnerability or it can be when you're exposed to novel environmental things that actually can damage the brain. Does someone who has schizophrenia have the ability to understand what's wrong with them? That's a good question. So oftentimes early on in the disease, they don't have the ability to know what's wrong with them. We call that insight. So they lack insight into the disease. So if you can imagine growing up with a brain that you've known and trust to give you real information about the world, how do you then distinguish that the brain is giving you false information? You have to sort of learn that, okay, what you're hearing in this context or experiencing is not grounded in reality. I don't know if you saw the movie, A Beautiful Mind, and in the beginning, you really believe that he had those roommates. And then all of a sudden, there's this break where he's realizing they're not really there. I think he's in the uh, psychiatrist's office. And, you know, but then it, towards the end of the movie, he's not really quite sure if they're there or not there. So they can kind of go in and out of believing and not believing. But it was that moment when he thought, well, maybe these are just my imagination, that was when he developed insight into those hallucinations. Now, in that movie, those were visual hallucinations, which are less common than the auditory hallucinations. But I would say, no, they don't always have insight in the beginning. Some never develop insight. Are they able to care for themselves, even if they don't understand, you know, what is happening to them? Can they take medication on their own? Can they, can they take care of themselves? I would say yes, they can take care of themselves in most cases. I mean, with the advent of neuroleptics in the 1950s, they didn't really need to hospitalize people in institutions anymore. They could be cared for at home. They can sometimes live on their own. One thing, they're not always that consistent with their medication, or they may start feeling that they don't need the medication and stop taking it, which is um, quite a problem because then they're more likely to relapse. And we know that the psychotic events themselves can be damaging to the brain. And the more relapse that they have, the harder it is for them to then get stabilized on good treatment. Um, so you want to avoid that. We think that there might be some um, toxicity that's involved when they are in a um, very florid psychotic state. Now, did you say that uh, the treatment did not work for your brother? Well, you know, uh, the treatment doesn't really work for anybody uh, very well. I mean, 80% of the people with schizophrenia can't hold down jobs. You know, 30% are treatment unresponsive. The ones that do respond to the treatment often have other complications like metabolic syndrome, diabetes, weight gain. I mean, there's a blunting of the um, personality with these drugs. These drugs are not really getting at the root of the problem. Um, so while their um, positive symptoms might be dampened, they don't restore them to their former level of um, ability or achievement. And most of them don't have what we would call a normal life. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with schizophrenia researcher, Dr. Cynthia Weikert. She recently won the 2021 Outstanding Translational Research Award from the Schizophrenia International Research Society. And now we're gonna talk about her work. What have you learned about the brains of people with schizophrenia? Well, recently I've made a breakthrough, and that is that the brains of people with schizophrenia are inflamed. Um, that means that molecules that the immune system used to signal danger and damage and um, pathogens are actually activated within the brains of people with schizophrenia. And what I find actually is an increase in macrophages. So those are immune cells that can be positioned in the brain near the blood-brain barrier, and they can actually um, stimulate cytokines and complement that can cause tissue damage. We certainly know that invasion of macrophages into other tissues um, can um, interfere with their function. And we think that this is happening in the brains of people with schizophrenia. It's never been shown before. We're one of the first labs to find it. That sounds like you're describing an autoimmune disease. Well, um, autoimmune would be more with the B cells, so that would be adaptive immunity, but there are forms of schizophrenia that um, have been identified as autoimmune encephalitis um, that make antibodies to the NMDA receptor, which is in the brain. Now, the neurologists want to separate that form of schizophrenia, which is estimated to be about 5%, and say, well, that's a neurological disease, not a psychiatric disease. And one of the things with schizophrenia is once we identify the biological cause, then it's got an underlying root cause, so it's no longer schizophrenia. But for the, you know, until 2006, it would have been classified as, as schizophrenia. And so, you know, there are severe forms of this NMDA receptor encephalitis that would lead to epilepsy and death, but there's more mild forms that are thought to have gone unrecognized in the psychiatric, you know, um, services. So I think this is the tip of the iceberg, yes, that there is a whole variety of immunological core reasons for schizophrenia, be it the antibody, autoantibodies, or be it macrophage invasion, some kind of um, inflammation. And yes, we're wondering what's causing the inflammation in the first place. Well, that was going to be my next question. What, what are your theories about where this inflammation is coming from? I think we're on the forefront of another breakthrough. Um, have two talented students, upstate graduate students, and I'm working with the genius Frank Middleton. And we're actually interested in the microbiome in the brain. And we're, we're um, hot on the trail of figuring out if maybe a microbe is um, uh, disproportionately um, exists in the brains of people with schizophrenia, but very early days in this research, but that's one of the angles we're pursuing here at Upstate. So it seems like there's a lot of research being done to find out the cause of schizophrenia. Is there a thought that there's some genetic component? Well, there's a definitely genetic predisposition. So, um, you know, it's thought to be that uh, identical twins, we talk about uh, we started talking about twins. We'll finish talking about twins. If uh, I had an identical twin, there would be a 50% chance that she would have schizophrenia as well if I did. Um, so is that genetic or not? It's like flipping a coin. Certainly we know schizophrenia can run in, in families, but we know there is also sporadic appearance. So schizophrenia, just by rule of thumb, is about 1%. If you have a relative, close relative, it might be up to 10%, but that means 90% chance you're not going to have it. So it's the genes and the environment coming together that causes schizophrenia. 
Now, what sort of treatment would you like to be able to develop? Well, what we're trying now is anti-inflammatory treatments. So the idea is no matter what the cause of the inflammation is, if it's making a bad situation worse, if we can dampen down the inflammation, can we give the brain a chance to heal and get better? So those are adjunctive. But down the track, if we actually identify a microbe, you could imagine we could use an antibiotic or an antiviral if we knew which one and which particular person. But in order to, to match you know, that treatment with the individual and their underlying cause, it's variable, then we need biomarkers. So we're also investing in trying to find easily accessible blood biomarkers to define those that are inflamed and what type of uh, inflammation or immunological problem they have so we get the right treatment for the right person. You're originally from the Finger Lakes and you're a graduate of Cuca College. How did you get involved in Neuroscience Research Australia and how do you divide your time between Syracuse and Sydney? So I went to New York City and Mount Sinai, graduated with a PhD where I became a molecular biologist studying the development of dopaminergic neurons. Then I took those skills to the NIH to start applying it to the disease of my passion, schizophrenia. From there, I rose to the level of unit chief, and I was one of the few scientists doing developmental neurobiology of schizophrenia. And that's exactly what they were looking for in Australia, someone to chair a research program. Um, that was in 2006, and there was about 80 scientists here in the state that needed leadership. And a headhunter found me, and I was chosen for the position, and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, thinking I would be there for five years with an $8 million package. And five years has now turned into 15, or closer to 15. Um, but, you know, there is uh, also an interest coming home. My mom, I wanted to be with her, um, and uh, Upstate had invested in uh, neuroscience research. I was actually um, interviewing for a job here. I had colleagues with, um, you know, in the field of psychiatry, like Steve Glatt that I was working with. Um, and I visited and I kind of, you know, uh, just fell back in love with the Finger Lakes. And I thought, well, maybe, a, you know, there's globalization of research. Maybe it would be good to have a presence in upstate and in Syracuse, and I've done cross-fertilization of students across the two countries. And, you know, some things I can do at upstate that I can't do in Australia, some things I can't do at upstate that I can do in Australia. So I try to, you know, leverage both. And in terms of splitting my time, I would have never imagined that you could be at two places at the same time, but with the global pandemic, it's taught us that we can. And basically I work 120% at both places which really amounts to about 70 hours worth of work. I'm a bit of a workaholic, but, uh, you know, I do it. Well, as a scientist who has personal experience with the disease, what do people, what do people need to know if they have a loved one with schizophrenia? Um, I guess one of the things to keep in mind is that there is a biological disease process uh, going on in, in, in their brain and there's nobody to blame. You know, they shouldn't blame themselves. They shouldn't blame certainly their family. Um, I think to be patient, I think to provide a loving environment and to try to buffer any kind of stress because we know that that can trigger um, psychosis. Um, good diet, good exercise, the things that are anti-inflammatory um, would be helpful. Um, nutritional assessment, of course. But for right now, I think in terms of better treatment, 
stay tuned, don't lose hope. I think we're really um, on the threshold of, of very exciting times in the field and ones that we're not just gonna base our treatments on chance discoveries from the 1950s. We're gonna do something altogether different, all different therapies beyond D2 receptor blockers that the antipsychotics are all modeled after. Thank you to Dr. Cindy Weikert, a professor of neuroscience and physiology at Upstate who studies schizophrenia. I'm Amber Smith from Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.